Welcome to another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation podcast. We're your hosts, Melanie Sona and Erin Liedka. And today we are very pleased to be joined by Dr. Mindy Fullylove. So Dr. Fullylove is a social psychiatrist and professor of urban policy and health at the New School. Since 1986, she has conducted research on the relationship between collapse of communities and decline in health. She's published over 100 scientific papers and eight books. She holds two honorary doctorates and is a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, an honorary member of the American Institute of Architects. In fall of 2024, she will deliver the Flexner Lectures at Bryn Mawr College based on her new research on the Tao of K-drama. And with that really exciting and um, full uh, background and introduction. Thank you again, Dr. Fulila, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, so um, we we uh, have had a lot of people on the podcast from a lot of different disciplines, which is something that we've really enjoyed having the opportunity to learn from. And you were the first psychiatrist to come on Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nations. So We are very excited to um, hear more about how your training and your perspectives have contributed to the research that you've done. Um, To get us started, can you briefly discuss, um, you know, how you got interested in environment neighborhood research and how that interest translates into the work that you're doing today? Yeah, well, um you know, there are many roots to these things. I, I was raised in an activist family. So my parents were civil rights organizers. So the idea that the the world is part of how we are, what makes us healthy, was certainly established from my earliest childhood. I was the kind of baby that was in the stroller at the demonstration. <laughs> so, so I always thought the world was part, and it wasn't just what was going on inside the individual. although. Um, some people who think about the world don't think at that time, didn't think as much about what was going on inside the individual. They weren't as psychologically minded as we are today. So psychiatry is a, a very important to me because I um, had a lot going on inside. <laughs> and so I was like, wait, I have to talk about some of this stuff. It's not as simple as what you're trying to say, but um but I couldn't forget the outside either. So it's sort of the inside and the outside. And that's why I'm a social psychiatrist, because social psychiatry looks at the individual, but also all the settings that the individual is in. On my path to becoming a social psychiatrist, I studied family therapy. And family therapy taught me about the family system, which is like the near system. And I worked in on hospital wards, which taught me about the milieu, the, the sort of when you have a group of people living together, how that works. Um, and so it's just a short hop and a skip to larger problems. When I got there, because I started studying the AIDS epidemic in 1986, as you mentioned. So one thing led to another. <laughs> yeah, that tends to be the trend um, as we've been learning from a lot of our experts. Like getting this very integrated and multidisciplinary background is, you know, quite honestly, just the result of, you know, tapping into what you've observed. Like you said, you grew up in an activist family. You You knew from the very beginning that the external world definitely played a factor in, you know, how you felt inside and, you know, also in how that kind of plays out in health outcomes. And then you were able to uh, find a very interesting intersection of disciplines to be able to study that and understand that. So I think that's 
very cool, um, very awesome. So thank you for, for sharing that background with us. Um, kind of getting into, you know, the concept of how the external world impacts our health outcomes. That's something, um, as our listeners know by now, hopefully that we are very interested in in this podcast, specifically how the neighborhood structure and dynamics can play a role in our health outcomes. And uh, the reason why we were so interested to have you come on is because you're an expert in understanding how um, uprooting people from their communities and their emotional environments can impact their health outcomes. Uh, so your book, Root Shock, uh, discusses that in detail. And we, are, uh, we have gotten the opportunity to take a look at the book. Um, and we would just like for you to explain for our listeners who may not have, what is the concept of Root Shock? And um, what is its impact on health of the individuals and the community? And then also maybe talk a little bit about how you were able to develop this concept. So everybody who's a listener who's a gardener will know the concept of root shock because it's gardeners who proposed the idea. And basically, the observation was that if you yank a plant out of the ground, it, its roots get damaged, and then you may not be able to transplant it. If you want to transplant something, you have to do it very carefully. And you can't, not all plants can be transplanted. Some trees, for example, have very deep tap roots, and you can't. I mean, you have to really be able to dig deep, 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 deep to transplant them. So not everything can be transplanted. So um, I became aware of the story of urban renewal very early because urban renewal was going on in Essex County, New Jersey, where I was growing up. And it was a big problem. And in, in my community, we thought of it as urban renewal, as Negro removal. Cause, and, and the truth behind that folk saying was that two-thirds of the people who were displaced were African-American. Um, and if we extrapolate that to projects, that means that about 1,600 projects of the 2,500 were directed at African-American neighborhoods. And another fraction was directed at Hispanic neighborhoods. So three-fourths of the people displaced were people of color. So this was very much a part of my growing up. As I started to study AIDS in neighborhoods, it turned out that AIDS was located in neighborhoods that had been disinvested and left abandoned by the, really by the government. And it's sort of, if we think of, of benign neglect, whatever that might mean as something sort of, well, I just wasn't thinking about you. A plan, this was planned shrinkage, which was active neglect, which was taking resources out of the neighborhoods and letting them collapse as, as government policy. When I try to explain this to students, they, they, they can barely manage because it just seems like, wait, our government would do that? This is hard to wrap your mind around. But yes, our government did do that. And it caused horrible upheaval in neighborhoods. Um, and so the neighborhoods where I was looking at the results of that, like the neighborhoods of the South Bronx and Harlem, had gone through this process and lost acres and acres and acres of housing. People were displaced. And that had created conditions for drug epidemics and infant mortality soaring and maternal mortality for soaring, violence soaring, really terrible. And I'm, I was just confused by this in a way, because my training in psychiatry 
although it had included family therapy, didn't really include neighborhood destruction. (laughs) How do you get from neighborhood destruction to the kinds of illnesses and problems that we were seeing? So I turned to the discipline of the psychology of place, which many scholars have contributed to, psychologists and geographers, anthropologists, many, many, many disciplines, to try to think about which of that body of work would help us understand the psychiatric consequences. And it was in the course of that that I came across, again, like I re-encountered the story of urban renewal and began to be able to see the pathway. In particular, I was helped by an extraordinary journalist in Roanoke, Virginia, Mary Bishop, who in 1995 wrote a special supplement to the newspaper there called Street by Street, Block by Block. And the front page says, the loss still stings. So this was talking about urban renewal in the 50s and 60s, and that in 1995, so three decades later, people were still feeling the hurt of what had happened to them. The loss was devastating. On the one hand, the loss, and as people explained what they had, why it hurt so badly, we come to understand the importance of neighborhoods. So in the absence or the destruction of neighborhoods, we start to see what they do that keeps us healthy, which is very important. It's kind of what you're working on, right? How do neighborhoods keep us healthy? Um, But we also say, okay, well, here's this thing that keeps us healthy. And if you destroy it, how do we fall apart? And so the stories of Roanoke tell us what happens if you you destroy that thing that keeps us healthy. Um, And it's not... It's really not looking at the individual and what the individual does. It's really looking at what people make together by living in the same place, working at jobs where they might, you know, work on the same, in the same, the railroad was very big there, so they might all work for the railroad. Um, but also just solving problems on, on the block, like somebody ran out of money and everybody had help or the kids needed to be invited over to, for babysitting sharing, you know, in a tight, close-knit community, um, all of that living together had created um, a substantive thing that's not at the person level. It's a thing of the collective, right? It's the collective. And that's only, only people working together over time can have that. You can't buy it. You can't go to the store and say, well, I'd like to have a collective. <laughs> If only. It would be nice. (laughs) And it's easily destroyed. So what we learn from the story of urban renewal is the preciousness of that. The pain that comes from people being, having their neighborhoods destroyed, however they get destroyed, is what I called root shock, taking the term from gardeners. Yeah, you did uh, such an amazing job explaining that. And that's something that I've appreciated as Melanie and I have looked more into your work, um, is you do a really good job of kind of explaining things in a context that anyone can understand and in weaving a story, right? It's not just a um, a concept that you're coming up with. This concept describes the stories and experiences of a lot of people who have experienced things like root shock or neighborhood disruption. Um and because you're so good at this storytelling component, particularly 
as I think that's something that we see that's maybe lacking a little bit in the in the public health discipline in general. Um, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on the importance of storytelling, um, specifically when it comes to, you know, especially with neighborhood work, you have this component of the history of the neighborhood and that history is key to providing context for um, the work that you're doing. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious like how maybe how you approach storytelling or what role do you think that plays in, in the work that you're doing? Um, I, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. So what do we do when we sit down with somebody? Well, tell me your story. And that's why I went into psychiatry. And when I was a medical student, I sat down and uh, we're supposed to be interviewing newcomers to the, a particular psychiatric clinic. And I asked this lady to tell me her story. And her story blew my mind. And I was like, wait, I have to go into psychiatry because I just want to keep hearing stories like this. It turned out that practicing psychiatry didn't lead to an infinite number of stories <laughs> like this. I went into research so that I could hear an infinite number of stories. So I've heard so many great stories. Um, and then the the thing about hearing stories is that I, I believe that one is in a way a channel and that my job is to pass them along as faithfully as I can and, and try to figure out how do I share my enchantment with the story with somebody else so that they could learn what I learned, even though they didn't get to sit with the person. One of the first people that I interviewed in Roanoke was Mr. Charles Meadows. And he was such a gripping storyteller. And, but, you know, trying to convey what it was like to sit with this, you know, thin elderly man who was so intense and, and had, had such a brutal experience of urban renewal. How do I convey that? It's hard. Storytelling is is quite a discipline. Um, public health gets off on the wrong foot because public health doesn't respect stories. You know, there's numbers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Give me any data. What do you mean I didn't give you any data? <laughs> the man told you what happened in his life. That's data. Yeah. Yes. So, so that's really where public health, they could figure out the other problems if they respected stories. But, but they don't. So, um, so there's that. Um, so I think the thing about stories that's so fundamentally important is that that's where you get the texture of the problem. How else would you know that this richness existed unless you talk to people? So, but there's a related problem, which is that America is very individualistic. We all, right? So when I first read Street by Street, Block by Block, one of my first questions about it was, why does she have so many people? Why is she quoting so many people? <laughs> yeah. Couldn't you just quote one person? She's quoting a lot of people. By the way, Street by Street, Block by Block is available in the internet, PDFs. We'll have to check it's it out. Oh, awesome. Yeah, definitely. It's a real foundational document. Because at the time of urban renewal, even though people knew urban renewal is Negro removal, Nobody went and asked the African-Americans what their experience was. And so her journalism is the breakthrough of telling the story of an African-American community. She's a white journalist. And so she had to work double hard to get the trust of people. Um, But she was able, because she's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, to have the freedom at the newspaper to do such a big project, huge project. Then when she wrote about it, she put all these people. I was like, why? Why are all these people? It was really a breakthrough 
question for me. Because that's actually what neighborhood is, a functioning neighborhood. There's a lot of people. And so from individualism, you can't get the story. And that becomes, for public health, almost insurmountable. So it's interesting because you mentioned that I'm now studying the Tao of K-drama. And K-dramas are these these 16 or so episode stories that come out of South Korea. And they're very dense and they have a lot of stories. Like one show will have seven or eight or 10 stories, like a hundred people. And I asked the same question. Why are there so many people? I just <laughs> yeah, the main character. The OTP, one true pair. <laughs> Sometimes they have five romances going at the same time. Like why? Why do you need five? But it, it's the same thing. But if you want to understand the meta, if you want to understand the collective, you have to have a lot of stories. It's profound, right? It's not in our storytelling. It's not in our culture. And it's why we think. It's why we think you can ignore, you can destroy, you can tear apart collectives. Because we don't actually understand how they work. We have no way of getting to what they do. Because we can't tell all the stories and we, we don't want to listen to stories and we don't value we don't value the meta. We don't know how to see it. Mary Bishop knew how to see it. Isn't that amazing? It yeah. is. It is. That's why she's a Pulitzer Prize winning. Exactly. <laughs> Even like the texture of the problem. To hear you say that really clicks immediately what you mean by that and exactly how many, how you, yeah, like the, the power that story has telling has to give you that. And without it, yeah, you you were lacking. That was very. I that is very yeah, interesting. It's very Thank profound. you for sharing that. Yes, yeah, so the storyteller in you is definitely shining through. But that just added, like Aaron said, another dimension to understanding, like the necessity for seeing the people um, behind, especially in public health, seeing the people not for just another statistic, but um, you know, seeing them for their lived experiences, and um, and then integrating that with one another. Um, I believe, um, and please correct me if I'm misquoting, but in your book, I recall there's a part where you, you discuss how we need to understand this issue of urban renewal is not, um, you know, like concrete individual experiences alone, but understanding them as a part of like the larger, the larger issue here. Everybody's experience is giving context for this issue as a whole. So if we're not, you know, cognizant of, um, you know, all of these different parts working together to tell what's going on in our, in our country when it comes to uprooting and um, dismantling people's cohesion and community, you know, we're, we're totally like at a miss for understanding how to even start addressing the issues, uh, which is, um, which we really appreciate about the perspective you're coming from um, in this book and in your work generally. So thank you for shedding some light on, on that. I think we can all, as public health researchers, take um, a, a note out of that of that book in terms of you know how we approach um, trying to serve the public. So, I'm curious if you could potentially just give us um, another example. Maybe some listeners out there are, although I think your description of what root shock is and um, the parallel to you know uprooting a plant is very vivid and uh, totally clicks and makes sense. 
I wonder if you could just give us some more concrete examples of um, instances of root shock in American history, uh, as I, I think we've also tried to uh, found in our podcast that understanding the history is a big part of remedying the problem. Uh, so we, we love to hear these, these historical um, points as well, if you wouldn't mind. Well, of course, American history is replete with these stories. There was a beautiful story in the Washington Post two days ago about a woman who's now 109, who's one of the last survivors of the Tulsa massacre that took place in 1921. And her, so her whole community was burned by by white people who, for some reason, decided that they needed to destroy the black community, which had become prosperous, which was succeeding, which was called Black Wall Street. They went in and burned the whole thing. So her mother woke her in the middle of the night and they fled. And then for years after that, she lived in a tent in the outskirts of town and was slowly able to come back. But all of the uh, prosperity of the community had been destroyed. And so she was worked as a domestic for many years. And often she's, the paper says that as she would work in somebody's house, she wondered if they were among the people who had, had attacked her community and destroyed it. Very heartbreaking story. Um, so many stories. If we think about what happened to Native Americans, we learn another layer of this, which is that the Native Americans were pushed off their land, not once, but many yeah, times. Yeah, repeatedly. So something I've called serial force displacement, but there's more than one of these that have happened to people. Um, so, you know, the United Auto Workers are on strike right now and taking on the top three automakers, which they've never done before. But in the... Um, so it's a very courageous and new story in the history of labor. But in the history of labor, there's also many of these stories of people. Certainly the whole story of deindustrialization in the United States, where towns grew up around the factory and people worked in the factory and had stable homes and stable incomes. Think of the city of Detroit. And the factories just pulled up and went someplace else. So that's another form of root shock. But I'd like to bring it into the present because... I defined Ruchak as the loss of all or part of one's emotional ecosystem. And the, the weather, I believe, is mm. part of our emotional ecosystem. Yeah, interesting. And therefore, by my definition of Ruchak and by the nature of climate change, Eight billion people have Ruchak right now. Wow. So we can't simply talk about this as something that happened to poor or marginalized people. This is happening to everybody yeah. on the whole globe. And that's very important because what does Ruchak do to people? It, it's, it's very painful. It makes people insecure. When people are insecure, they, they want to get secure again. And how are they going to do that? One of the things people do is they turn to despots, to tyranny, yeah. just to be yeah. secure. Wow. Um, or they turn to fanatical religion to feel secure. Interesting. Or they hate other people. They have a lot of anger. The 
rates of, of, you know, anxiety disorders, I'm sure you're following that, are through the roof just across the board. Um, children are terrified. What, what are children supposed to think? Do they have a future? For somebody who, like me, who's old, I'm losing the weather I've always had, I've always known. I live about a mile from where I grew up, so this is the weather. It's the right weather, or it was, but it's not. It's not the same anymore. So what am I supposed to do with that? So I think that, you know, not only are our governments just failing us by doing what they need to do, which is to, to say, we, we have a problem, but here's how we're going to solve it, everybody, and here's your part. You know, the kind of leadership that we're not getting that. Most people are busy having a lot of fights. Yeah, yeah. This, this and that. Meanwhile, the, uh, and it's not just our species. It's not just happening to our species, right? This is, this is the ecosystem in which our species evolved. The Holocene has been replaced by the Anthropocene. For all of us, all the species that evolved, co-evolved, like the dog, the cats, the trees, the insects, the ladybugs, all of us evolved together. So, so we're all in root shock. The trees are in root shock. The dogs are in root shock. Everybody, the whales, right? Did you hear about whales attacking boats in the Mediterranean? And haven't. But I've heard some pretty crazy stories about killer whales recently, specifically. Boot shock. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just a true fact that we're all in root shock right now, which means that it's very useful to go to Roanoke and ask people what has it been like. Yeah. (laughs) What'd you go through? Can you help us out? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's, I I really, you almost anticipated um, a question that I had, which was this idea of, I think that something that I appreciated about your explanation of root shock and the concept in general is it's applicable on all these different levels. Like an individual can experience that, a community can experience that. And then based on what you just said, you know, everyone depend we're experiencing climate change differently in different regions of the world but you know still it's really affecting um our sense of self and security um which is just really it's crazy to think about it on that scale too because i think when a lot of people think about the environment the first thing they think of is like oh the polar bears or the ice caps or the you know which is obviously all very important but that was something you know as as i've learned more about the impact of neighborhoods. It's like, well, why are we thinking about these environments that are, you know, I don't, I don't, I hope I can go to the Arctic sometime, I hope, but I'm not, that's not my immediate environment. That's not affecting my immediate um, health and well-being. And, and climate change specifically has a lot of implications and is impacting my daily health and well-being in ways that are being almost overlooked. Um, so I appreciate the inclusivity and expansiveness of this concept and being able to think about the environment in terms of, you know, different degrees of, you know, neighborhood, globally, um, city, state, um, something. And this is, you led right into this, but what are some of the ways that people, whether it's an individual or communities can kind of cope or deal with um, the consequences of root shock and what can be done to address 
um, root shock. And I know that obviously, depending on the, the context, it may, there may be different solutions. But what have you seen? So social psychiatry, the, the fundamental thesis of social psychiatry is that we want strong integrated communities, not integrated in the sense of simply racially, but, but in the sense of strong social bonds. We want this strong meta thing that Mary Bishop described in the black communities in Roanoke before urban renewal. We want that. And in the U.S., also in many other countries, these processes like urban renewal, like plant shrinkage, like deindustrialization, have actually caused so much upheaval that we don't have those strong communities. So anywhere, anybody you ask will say, no, I, I don't know my neighbors. Very few people in America know their neighbors in, in a way to have that kind of meta bond. Would you agree? Then definitely. So, so the issue is, we don't have the foundation to say, "Oh, we got a real problem. Let's work together." We don't even have the foundation. Yeah. So we're we're at the almost in the pre stage. You know how they say if you're going to go on a diet, you have, there's a pre stage where you have to develop your motivation. The pre, yeah, yeah like pre contemplation or <laughs> whatever it is. So we are in the pre contemplation of not being crazy. <laughs> <laughs> We can't just get right to work. Um, and I think when you're in pre-contemplation of getting to know other people, the, the whole getting to know you, you're not of the King and I generation, but of, when I was growing up, the movie The King and I was very big. And at that time, whatever musicals were big on Broadway, every everybody sang all the songs, like black, white, everybody. So... King and I, there's a song called Getting to Know You. So it's about a British woman who's in Thailand and she's getting to know these Thai kids. And so she says this song, getting to know you, getting to know all about you. We're at that stage. We don't know our neighbors. We have to get to know each other. And I, one of the most powerful tools in that stage is the arts. That's why so many people are saying, well, we need to use the arts. And we do need to use the arts. So I live in Orange, New Jersey, West Orange, New Jersey, but one inch away is West is Orange. Uh, and we have a Free People's University of Orange, and one of our projects is called Music City. And the idea of Music City is that there's a lot of musical people in Orange. For some reason, it has a depth of musical genius that's fantastic. And so trying to get all the musical cultures together so there's, you know, there's hip hop, but there's also classical. There's all kinds of music from Latin America and Africa, a, a lot of different kinds of music. And so we do events that bring together the musical voices. For example, around December 1st, um, we celebrate Rosa Parks. So December 1st is the day in 1955 when she refused to give up her seat on the Montgomery bus, her famous act of civil disobedience. So we have a Remembering Rosa concert in which we bring together church choirs and school choirs to sing together. Yeah, it's a great event. And then we have a Music City Festival in the spring where all kinds of people come and do their music. So you can see all these cross currents. After a while, everybody starts to realize, oh, Orange is cool. We're cool. <laughs> music. I've seen you before. It just gets to be more active and yeah. people start talking to each other and they start saying wait we have such and such a problem we have a lot of problems we have all the problems everybody else has right, right. 
they want to build market rate housing. They don't want to build affordable housing. That's everywhere in the United States. Like, what's going on with you people? You think this is like a crazy, crazy, it's like, it's like a piece of insanity, right? But you can only build market rate apartments. I'm an honorary member of the American Institute of Architects, but I've met a lot of architects. And they say to me, look, the market can't build low-income housing. It doesn't, doesn't pencil out, they say. They don't make any profit. So they're not going to build it, but only the market can build housing. Then there won't be any low-income housing built. And guess what? You have homelessness all over the United States. Ten cities. Does this make sense to you? Yeah. I mean, what I'm saying makes sense. Does the policy make sense? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> How are you going to have neighborhoods if you don't have stable? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, and we're in a crisis of not, and it's not just low-income housing, like low, 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 right? It's all the way up to almost the highest levels of income. People, it costs too much. So we have that problem in Orange, New Jersey, because it's everywhere. But when we weren't talking to each other and there were just these little groups and we were broken and divided, we couldn't talk about it. But now we can talk about it. And the arts have helped to just loosen up the conversation. Interesting. I don't say we've got to the point of solving climate change because, of course, we haven't. We're just, at the, as you so brilliantly labeled it, Erin, pre-contemplation. Unfortunately. <laughs> <we're> no. <laughs> And that's where all of America is, except in that, you know, they're pretty angry with each other. You know, they, they have a lot of weird ideas. No, it's, it's very interesting, these ideas you're bringing up, Dr. Fully Love. And I'm just curious, to, I mean, you mentioned earlier and reiterated it um, in this, what you just said, that, I mean, our foundation doesn't really acknowledge or have an appreciation for this, like, uni- unity, like working together. You know, America's very much so... Um, my parents are uh, immigrants from West Africa, and they always talk about how here it's very much so. It's it's hard because um, although where they come from has its own set of problems, economically speaking, here it's hard because it's very much so you're on your own and trying to live and uh, fight for yourself, fend for yourself, which breeds a whole host of issues like what you just discussed. I'm have you looked um, cross-culturally and done any analysis of like other societies and how they kind of facilitate unity and how that maybe alleviates a lot of the, or has prevented some of the issues we're starting to, we see in our own culture of divide and, um, you know, p- put policies and practices that are actually actively dividing people. Have you, have you um, done any work looking at that cro- abroad? Almost all of my work has been in the United States. So this project that I'm doing now, the Dow of K-Drama, is the first that's really trying to think about another culture and how it approaches some of these issues. And so the Korea, the, the peninsula, it has a, a very, very long history and has been invaded many times, all kinds of people trying to take over more, most recently Japanese colonialism and then World War II and then the Korean War and partition. So lots of, lots of, lots of upheaval. So the, the deep culture of the country is, is actually very wise about upheaval. They, they know a lot about it and have a lot of thoughts about what you do to get to keep it together, including what you're talking about, this belief in the collective. 
that that there is a collective and that one should take care of it. So, for example, um, a journalist named Yuni Hong wrote a wonderful book, which if you haven't read it, you both enjoy it, and you'd love to have her on your show. Um, Nunchi, N-U-N-C-H-I, Nunchi. Nunchi. Nunchi is like the coolest thing. Sounds cool. But I bet if your parents read the book Nunchi, they would recognize it. Because Nunchi is how do you behave so that the group gets along? The, the basic thesis is when you walk into a room, you don't walk into it to dominate it. You walk into it to make it to make the whole room function better. I mean, imagine that. N- nobody in America walks into a room to make the room function better. Yeah. <laughs> we just don't. We walk yeah. into a room and say, okay, how do I take over this situation? Yeah. Or how do I hide? Not <laughs> how do I Nani, after your parents read the book Nunchi, let me know if they don't agree that they have that too. No, I definitely will. I think it's like a core a core tool of how you make collectives work is Nunchi. Because looking after the other people, you gotta you gotta want the collective to be a collective. Um so you know studying K drama has been a very eye-opening experience for me because these are stories of collectives and how they function. Now, does that mean South Korea has it all right? I, I don't think so, right? They have lots of problems. Like, they have serious problems. And, and in a way, being collectivist meant that uh, they couldn't say no. So, you know, there's sort of, how do you go from being one of the poorest countries on earth to being the number 13 economy or whatever they've reached by now, number 13 largest economy in the world in such a short amount of time by everybody working really, really, really hard. And so they have the highest levels of drinking, the highest levels of suicide, and the lowest birth rate. It, certainly in, in their economic development group in Asia, but on, in some measures in the world. Those are serious problems, right? So being collectivist can lead you into other kinds of issues. What is the happy medium? I, I don't know. But it's a hard one. I'm really sure we're like so far on the end of individualism that we could hang out with each other for a long, long time before we say, oh, I'm working too hard for the group. And it was like, don't worry about that yet. <laughs> Try to have a group. Try to have a group. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you for your, um, your perspective on that, Dr. Falilov. And it's a very interesting concept. Um, and Uni Hong is, she's a brilliant. Yeah, we'll have yeah, to look no, it. We'll definitely, check it out. Yes. Thank you for the recommendation. Yes. So listeners, stay tuned. Maybe we will get her on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but that's an idea that's definitely very fascinating and something that has been uh, reoccurring. We had a sociologist come on uh, a few seasons ago on our podcast and talked about the importance of cohesion and this collectivism idea that you bring up. So it's something that I, you know, prior to really getting involved in um, public health, something that I maybe took for granted, I never really paid attention to because I, I felt plugged into the communities that were surrounded around me. But to now see how crucial it really is when we're talking about, you know, disparities in maternal health or, you know, rates of diabetes, um, hypertension, all of these things to see how... The functioning of the House of Representatives. <laughs> That's a very relevant also example. <laughs> very relevant example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very relevant example. <laughs> Get it together. Yeah. Yes, uh, definitely. So, yeah, it's super important. Thank you for, for uh, discussing that. 
So uh, this question is slightly um, off of kilter, um, the discussion of Nunchi. But uh, we, we'd also like to know, since this is our political determinants of health season, where we're looking at how policies do um, impact our neighborhoods and how they are shaped, and um, even in the point of dissolving neighborhoods, what roles do you see policies um, and urban planning coming into play in alleviating root shock? I mean, they're very much so a part of the causation of root shock. Uh, how do you see them being able to step in or policymakers being able to step in and work together to create uh, healthier communities? We have a very vivid example before us, which is that the COVID policies, the economic policies under during the COVID pandemic, alleviated a lot of poverty and prevented eviction and created stable settings and access to healthcare for across the population and meant that a lot of people didn't have to commute. It just We saw all those policies and the good things that they did, that they accomplished. So not only did we, we, did we wonder if those things would work, we have now demonstrated that they do. And then we ended those benefits and threw people back into poverty, threw people back on the streets. And you may have read the recent upshot in the New York Times that young children are the most at risk for eviction, or most harmed by eviction. So new research on eviction that is pointing out that they're most vulnerable, kids zero to four. So why would you want to have kids zero to four face such a trauma? Everybody's like, oh, they're resilient. But what we know from the adverse childhood experiences that, in fact, children aren't resilient, that these things leave a mark, and that they will pay in their health outcomes for the rest of their lives for this kind of upheaval. So um, the so we don't really have to wonder what are the policies we Proved what are the policies. So give everybody some basic income and build some housing that's affordable <laughs> for people, poor people, or everybody has a house. It's not, it's not rocket science. Uh, well, we don't do those things. So that's where we are in the policy conflict. Um, there was a, a wonderful a story about the leader of the UIW, Mr. Fain, who's leading the strike, and how he came to his position as president of the union. And one of the things he says is there shouldn't be any billionaires. And, and the article actually tracks. I'm very bad at remembering numbers, which is why I stick to telling stories. <laughs> but it's something like when he was a kid, there were three billionaires, and now there are 745 billionaires. When there are 745 people that have, and they don't just have one, they have all the billions, right? They have all the money. That means the rest of us don't have money. How many people don't have $400 in case they needed to repair their car? So his point is that it's just too lopsided. It's like fundamentally too lopsided to have this kind of concentration of wealth and so he's saying some very straightforward things. He wants a 40% pay increase because they haven't had a pay increase in a long time. He wants a 32-hour work week. He's putting forward really sensible arguments for how to create better living and working conditions for people. And 
setting a standard for what we should all be fighting for. And so, but this, 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 there's got to be some money circulating so that you could have a little extra, you could have a little extra, I could have a little extra, and maybe we could put in the bank and retire. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine that. Yeah. I was, I, I'm old enough that some of my friends were lucky enough to have pensions and can retire, and but others of my friends don't. They, all they have is Social Security. It's not enough to live on. And so they're getting older and older, and they see no end in sight for their working years. How does that make any sense? It doesn't. They won't be able to do it, and then what will they do? The body, the body gives out after a while. So those who know the policies. I had a doctoral student who wrote a dissertation on women and AIDS, and at the end she said, no further research is needed. <laughs> just intervention, just action. Just do it. Yeah. You know it would. Yeah. No, it's it's very interesting this um I hadn't thought about COVID in that way before because it seemed the way it's framed is like these emergency measures and they were emergency measures to some degree, but we really did see the positive impact that those emergency measures had on people, even something like halting student loan payments. Um that, you know, had yeah. a really positive effect on people's ability to live in just a you know slightly better state than they were living before. But it was always the assumption. It was like, oh, well, when is this? You know, there was never a, a question of, oh, we, maybe we should continue this. Or maybe this is something that we should, you know, look into making more permanent. It was always like, oh, well, it's going to end now. And it, they had to keep extending it, right? Because COVID continues to affect people in ways that they couldn't imagine. But I mean, at this point, it, it, it's just very interesting. And then that even further connects to this idea of how integral like your basic human needs being met, your environment plays such a role in overall health for you and your community, but it also links to almost every single other, you know, health outcome and issue. And so I think that that's something we've really just the interconnectedness of neighborhoods and people's immediate environment growing up, how much that plays into their health and how much these policies that are coming from the top down directly affect, even if it's not a neighborhood specific policy, right? Even if it's not specifically catered towards addressing some of those stuff, it has a direct impact on the environment that people are living in. Um, so I really, I, I genuinely have really appreciated this conversation, Dr. Foley Love. I think I've learned a lot much more than I, um, you know, I'm so glad we got to speak to you live and in yeah. person, even though your your work is also amazing. Just to hear some of those insights has been really... Oh, yeah. yeah, I want to throw out a yeah. hypothesis. So the whole world knows that House of Representatives is in complete chaos. Well, what if we say, because we usually think about the poorest people as suffering from their neighborhoods. But what if we entertain the hypothesis that they've suffered from root shock and they're acting out on our behalf global impact? Interesting. We want them to be sensible and to say, well, this is what we should do and we're going to do it. But because they themselves are suffering from root shock, they actually can't behave in a sound manner. They're, they're, they're in a state. You know, it's a stress reaction to the of all or part of their emotional ecosystem. Very interesting. Yeah. 
And we don't know how to cure the root shock of the policymakers. But if we start to think about it cleverly, like, well, what do those people need, those men and women? Well, definitely. Yeah, I had not. It's it's a it's a interconnecting circle. Yes. It really is. It really is because if they are destabilized by root shock, they can't make policies to stabilize us. That's very yeah. true. So we have to think really inclusively and with great compassion. Great compassion. We have to feel everybody. We can't just focus. A lot of people are like, well, the most marginalized, the frontline communities. I think at this point, we're actually all on the front line. Wow. And we are ill-prepared because we don't have that fundamental social cohesion, because we're at each other's throats, because we have had displacement in many domains over many decades, over centuries, if we think about the displacement of the Native people. So we, Our country was founded on that displacement. It was founded on that displacement. So we don't have this, this thing, this cloud of connection. We don't have it. Very profound. Yeah. We're, we're deeply in crisis. Yet, we have within each of us the capacity for love. And could we stir that in some way, we could go in another direction of instead of hate and being mad at each other saying you know i get it you're upset i'm upset there was drought there was flood there was this there was that there was fires i couldn't breathe the air the sky turned orange i was sitting here the sky turned orange i couldn't see out my window wow. West what's going on yeah it's a really profound it's a, it's, perspective Dr. it's a good reminder yes. too i think especially when there's a lot of frustration surrounding current events and stuff like that a good reminder to to um the impact of empathy and the importance of thinking of things from different perspectives. If they're not immune. Yeah. If you're feeling it and you're feeling it and I'm feeling it, they're not immune. It's true. Yeah. They don't have a moral shield. It's very true. They're feeling it worse because they are feeling the ripples from all of us. They're like, could you please yeah. take care of us? <laughs> I don't know. Yes. Oh, I exactly. really like that perspective. Um, that's, that's one I think we, um, Although our policymakers are the ones that are, they have the power, they have the control that ultimately um, ripples down and impacts all of us. I think we we tend, I mean, the blame is definitely mostly put on, on these people and we fail to um, view their humanity and all of it. So that's a very, very interesting and um, uplifting perspective, I think, to have, which is why it's great to have a psychiatrist on the podcast. <laughs> We've never heard this before. Yes, have your insights. Yes. Very appreciated. To um, close us out, this is a big, it's a big shift, I think, from our, what we've divulged into it. But, you know, as you know, we're about um, the effects of neighborhoods, the importance of neighborhoods on your um, health and the environment surrounding you and how that impacts your life. And so something that we ask all of our guests is if you can uh, describe what your neighborhood environment or your neighborhood was like growing up and, and what you, how you think your neighborhood uh, impacted you today. So as I said, I grew up about a mile from where I live now. And uh, what I thought of what, what I thought of as my neighborhood was a small strip of like four blocks long and one block wide that ran alongside a park designed by the Olmsted brothers. So a big, beautiful park 
Um, so we used to play in the park and we had a pond and everybody would fish in the pond. So going back and forth to the park was how we grew up. Um, it was a black neighborhood and it was um, interesting when you look at the Essex County redlining map, it was not red, but African-American ghettos extended, grew, and often diversified. So as it grew, they would develop a middle-class community. So where I lived was more the um, a kind of like people who were mailmen and a couple doctors and a couple lawyers. So it was just, you know, people had a little bit more more income. Being a mailman was a very good job in the black community. And it was a close-knit community. Then it was the kind of community where classically, if I misbehaved two blocks over, uh, by the time I got home, my parents would know I'd be in deep trouble. So we were, uh, you know, we were very much under the, the collective thumb of the community. At one point, I was dating a boy in high school that my um, community thought was unsavory. And um, so they mobilized. They mobilized, mobilized the community <laughs> <laughs> against you. Wow. <laughs> and they did various things in addition to saying, no, that's the wrong person. They also said, they wanted, I wanted to be a doctor. And so the pediatrician took me on rounds to the hospital so, to wow, see what awesome. it was wow. like. I'll be a doctor, this is what it is. It's a great profession, but you can't go out with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing those uh, those insights with us. Um, we have really, as I'm sure our listeners had as well, we really enjoyed spending this time with you. Thank you for uh, coming on. Thank you for coming to Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation. So for those of you who are listening, we, as always, want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and hearing Dr all of Dr. Fully Love's uh, stories. Um, we would really appreciate if you could give our podcast a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts and go follow us on Instagram at HNHN underscore podcast. You can also check out our YouTube channel for the video recordings of our conversations. And we hope that you will join us next time to explore how healthy neighborhoods are the foundation of healthy nation.